Hello. We were talking about Disney stuff. Well, you were out. We were. Yes. Out and about. Out for 30 seconds to go grab my boom mic stand and plug everything in and turn it on. That's what we're calling it these days. <laughs> um, I guess we should just jump in here. Hi, welcome to uh, this podcast. It's been a while. Yeah. We missed you. If you only listen to Spodcast, I guess. <laughs> um, why don't we uh, pick up from where you guys were, uh, where I interrupted you to plug in my microphone so we could do this. Uh, so rudely You went to Disney World? Yeah, so I went to Disney World and I was just telling Camster about all the different hotels I stayed in because I um, have lit, lit candles from the smells of the hotels because I miss them a lot. So I actually had a Port Orleans candle, and I don't remember what Port Orleans smelled like, but I also have a Yacht Club uh, smell on the way, and that was distinctly very awesome. Like it was, it's like an aloe, um, beachy sort of smell, and it's just amazing. The Yacht Club's fancy. What? Were these like candles you could buy in the hotel gift shop, or did no, you realize they don't afterwards sell. you really wanted them and you found something that smells like the hotel? Yeah, it's like an Etsy thing that I found, and like there's a lot of them like that. But Disney actually doesn't sell like any park scents, but I do know how they generate their scent because I was like for a hot minute thinking about buying that industrial machine they use and buying the exact same scent which I found but it's not even a candle it's like a whole like uh, smell system that they have there's this, you walk into your your house and in the middle of your living room is just a, a giant industrial air purifier slash scent generating machine <laughs> but it smells like Pirates of the Caribbean I mean, me and my wife have been tempted to do the same thing with the um, stupid industrial strength uh, fog generators for they do at HHN because we love the smell of that stuff. But like that would drown our house in fog so quickly because <laughs> it's an industrial strength fog machine. It, it'd be bad. Yeah, is it's, that like is that safe to use in uh, an environment the size of a house? Like you're really not supposed to use it that often in enclosed areas. So no. Oh, you mean the scent I feel thing? Like, oh, like, no. I even, don't know about the scent. Even if it's not toxic, I, I feel like it would probably destroy your walls with, like, mold and mildew. Well, now, now, let's not be hasty, Josh. Now, I, I did some additional research, and it turns out there's a lot of people online that have purchased these from for their homes. Really? It's worth it. Yes, I've heard testimonials <laughs> of people, like... They're like, yes, this is the stuff Disney uses. I needed it for my house. That is impressive. So that is dedication. It. Yeah, so, like, I would do that if they had, like, a way to buy them. But, like, it's it seemed a little strange. Like, it seemed more like an industrial style. Like, you know, large entertainment companies like Disney buys these things. I don't think they're interested in sending, like, one to one person. I don't know. I didn't look into it that much, I suppose. You got me. How much do these things cost? See, I didn't see a price. Oh, but people have apparently found a way to buy them. Yeah, like... Maybe they're second-hand Or maybe people unit? are buying, like, a hand-at-home uh, version of the same smell, but it's not the actual, like, big machine. 
I don't know. That's weird. That it's just the idea of trying to make your like not make your house smell like uh, Disney, but the, to buy the industrial strength stuff is is weird to me because like I, I feel like that can only be sourced from certain suppliers. Yeah, you know. would think so. Because that means you have to like have an industrial scent sales rep that you know the number of that you can just call up your sense guy. I don't know. Just I feel like that's a lot of dedication. It is living a very extra life, I will admit. Like I wonder, like how exclusive the deal Disney has with their suppliers is. Like if you can just like, oh, I know a guy at a warehouse, so I can get some extra stock. I mean, it can't I think be it's less exclusive. of the deal and more of the markup. Yeah, yeah. Because like I know a few things that I can find from Disney at like the source, like the source for certain things. And you see the prices on there and then compare them to the Disney price. And you're like, ah, it's like five times the price. So aside, maybe they get like a bulk deal. Anyways, it's not interesting. (laughs) Well, aside from, from Disney smells, uh, what else did you do or see at Disney world? That was interesting. Well, this is my um, fifth time, so obviously, like, I've seen a lot and done a lot, Uh Um, but this time I got to see the Avatar stuff, because that just opened. (laughs) Unfortunately, I went right before Toy Story Land opened in Hollywood Studios, so, like, that's... And you know what's awesome is that, actually, there's a billboard right down the street from where I live that's advertising it. It's, like, an Air Canada billboard with Toy Story Land, and I have... Basically, drive by it. We'll drive by it every time I take Biscuit out to the park, and it's gonna torture me. And I'm gonna be so. I'm gonna be so upset. It's gonna eat away at my soul. But anyways, studios. Oh, go ahead. Oh yeah. So that's um. Those are like the. That was kind of like the newest thing. They had a new fireworks show, um, to replace Wishes, which was really friggin' awesome. Um, and I did the Keys to the Kingdom tour for the first time which is like the behind the scenes tour of the Magic Kingdom. And I did a lot of new restaurants that were like, that were like, you know, in demand restaurants that I never got a reservation for before. Ooh, did, any cool ones? Did we ever do the behind the scenes stuff? I can't remember. You and I did. Jacob and I were there like, well, Jacob and I, cause we'd been there. We'd been there for like, like three or four times, I think. Um, and this was all of my kids. Yeah. Also, Jacob's here. Hello. Uh, Hi, Jacob. Surprise! I'm here now. I just got back from dinner. I, 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 for some reason, I have this like memory of doing behind the scenes stuff, or this impression that we did that, but I don't remember. I don't. I don't think it was like the full on behind the scenes tour thing, because that's pretty extensive, right? Yeah, it was like a five hour walking tour. They have an actual like tour of behind the scenes Disney now. They've had this for a while. When we were kids, uh, maybe it was just, like, I'm not remembering this right, but we had, like, we got there early or something, and they took us on, like, some behind-the-scenes stuff, like you're remembering, Josh. But I don't think it was, like, an official thing. I think yeah. it was just, like, the costume characters picked us to do this thing. Uh, and they oh, took us on the rides moment. early. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, a magical Yeah, maybe that's moment. what it was. 
it was a pretty magical moment, except for the fact that I was terrified of Goofy, and they tried to oh, get no. me to ride with Goofy <laughs> down Splash Mountain, which was already a ride that scared me, because I didn't like drops at the time, and it was double whammy terrifying. I was freaking out. I remember that distinctly. That's really lucky, though. Not many kids get that opportunity. Oh, it was also, super great. doing I, Splash Mountain like at the beginning of the day is a mistake. I always, always do it because it's my favorite ride. I do it all the time. Well, we know who we're not going to Disney with. <laughs> <laughs> it gets hot enough in Florida in the mornings that it's okay to be wet. Yeah, it's but it's humid. Yeah, like... You're going to get rained yeah. out anyway. It's Orlando. It's whatever. It's just you're just doing your vacation thing. I, I, the last time I was at Disneyland, though. Walt Disney? I actually knew the whole history <laughs> oh, right. of that in the behind-the-scenes tour. They talked all about it. So I know all the answers oh, to your questions. I'm Alex. I got the cool behind-the-scenes tour, and Josh and I only got the magical moment. <laughs> it was very cheap <laughs> swampland. Uh, oh, yeah, it was, it was basically... Um, it's all reclaimed, uh, like like swamp and bog areas right like it's not it wasn't yeah. even like really solid it wasn't like open fields no it was no, definitely they had open. to do a lot of like terraforming and like what the coolest thing i learned is that the magic kingdom is actually built up off of the like ground floor or essentially like the land they built it up so like when we were underground in the tunnels that was actually like main floor and oh, the magic kingdom like the castle is above ground It's yeah, neat. I've heard like how there's a there's a huge network of like tunnels for all the the workers to use. So like and and it creates this sort of like freaky police state kind of stuff when it comes to people breaking the rules because like it, it, you know they've got surveillance cameras everywhere and they're watching you even if you don't know it and you break the rules and like people just start swarming out of nowhere through hidden entrances to the underground. Have you ever to, told uh, the to... story of of Dad and his friends on that trip? Is that something you I, think we shouldn't tell? I don't tell remember us. what the story is, so... Oh, you don't remember the story? Well, I'll just launch into it because I've had a couple of drinks and I don't know. I think it's fine. Do it. Um, so launch my your dad mouth. went with a group. I don't know... <laughs> launch my mouth. I don't know if, um, um, if it was like a school trip or whatever, but he was there with a bunch of people. And, um, and a couple of his friends, he wasn't there, but a couple of his friends decided that it would be a smart idea to hold up one of the train rides. Uh, this was back in, like, oh, okay, the 70s, I remember so I have no idea now. which one it was. Uh, and so what they did is they got bandanas, and they, like, like kind of went off the path into the woods. <gasps> oh, and no. before, before the ride even started, like, Disney security popped out of the ground, apparently, and, like, like arrested them, pretty much. They, like, came out of nowhere. <laughs> and so... Yep. So my dad, who's in another part of the park, just hears, like, uh, uh, could, could so-and-so, the leader of this trip that they're on, come and pick up, uh, c come to the security desk to pick up, um, A, B, and C, and so everyone who was on that trip, of course, was curious, so everyone went back to the front desk, uh, or the security yeah. desk, and only to find those kids. They were really lucky. They only got, they, they got let off with, like, a warning or something like that, which today you'd be kicked out of the park forever. Um, yeah, the '70s they didn't really care about like comical yeah. tour, tom comical terrorism. I guess is what it's called. I, Cartoon I almost terrorism. Get, got kicked. I almost got kicked out of the park once because I mentioned I mentioned pepper spray. 
Um, because my wife once accidentally got caught in airport security with it, which is a whole other story. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to shut up. Everyone's going to hear this too. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but I said that. I was like, don't make it like the pepper spray incident, Madison. And they freaked out. They were like, we do not say pepper spray here. I was like, all right, jeez. <laughs> Relax. Uh, I try to be on my best behavior at Disney because I'm just scared of the police state. Yeah, it's kind of scary. But it's also just, like, everyone else is being so nice that, like, I try my best never to be, like, a dick as much as possible. Because, like, I know these people are, like, really, really nice and happy and they most likely, yeah. like, really want to be there. But, like, you know there's, like, a billion other families out there that are just bitching and yelling at oh, these people. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. like, <laughs> it kills me. Yeah. And they... I don't think they get paid all that much, do they? No. No, they that have the, like the, um, one... the... Go ahead. Oh, that was like the one thing where like we were with... Um, my group had someone in it that was like really interested in talking to the um, behind-the-scenes person about like union stuff and like all oh. this stuff. And like, because he's like, oh, when we're behind the scenes, we can talk about the real dirt. And so... I guess that's what they interpreted it was. Like, let's shit on Disney as a company. But really, it just meant, like, let's just say the things that we don't want to say in front of children. So she was just like, yeah. are you guys unionized? How many days, like, how many hours a week do you work? Do you get time off? And he's like, you know what? I could work as much as I want. And, like, it was so robotic and creepy and weird. Oh, he's man. like, I could work over 10 hours if I wanted to. And I'm just like, that's not good. Um, yeah. It was weird. He was very media trained, knowledgeable, but a very like strong stance and and a history that leaves out a lot of things conveniently. If you know what I mean? Yeah. Like a lot of history. Conspiracy theory. Yes. No, Did I just you... I know I I know Disney has the Disney College program, which is one of the ways they get basically free labor um or close to it. Uh, where they go to college campuses and, and argue that, like, you know, hey, come do an internship at Disney. It'll be great opportunities and you get to work at Disney oh, World boy. and it's going to be great. And they pay you basically next to nothing. It's, 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 I, I can't remember what the exact amounts are, but it's not great. It is bad. And, and you get to go there and, and work for Disney and you get to say you have Disney job experience, but it's, it's one of the many ways Disney figures out how to skirt labor costs. I mean, realize right now I'm, Disney is basically at war with the city of Anaheim, which is its own thing. Uh, Disney is at war with a lot of people and a lot of places and a lot of entities. For example, United States IP laws. Yeah, they're not actually trying to, to, to push this one, are they? I, I thought the 2021, I, they were going to let that stay. And because, because their new tactic is to use trademark law. Like the old tactic was, yeah, let's just keep kicking copyright out. Every time Mickey's about to go into the public domain, let's, let's kick Mickey out. Their new tactic, as I understand it, and I'm not a lawyer, so do not believe anything I'm about to say. But from what I've read, because, more. I'm because I'm, I'm interested in this topic, is that from what I understand, they are not pushing to extend the Copyright Act any further. It's, it's already ridiculously too long. Um, and in something like 2022 or 2021, Mickey will enter the public domain, uh, or not Mickey, um, Steamboat Willie will enter the public domain. But 
because Disney still holds a trademark on the name Mickey Mouse and has a close brand identity associated with Mickey Mouse and Mickey Mouse's, you know, head shape icon and all of that is still thoroughly trademarked. You can take Steamboat Willie, or you will be able to take, once it enters the public domain, Steamboat Willie, and make derivative works from it, but good luck trying to capitalize or sell on it or promote it in any meaningful way without using the trademark terms like Mickey Mouse or Mickey Mouse's Visage or anything like that. So it's going to be a real interesting future we're headed into, but they're not, as I understand it, currently trying to advocate for yet another copyright extension. Sorry, that's just my little... this is legal advice. It's not legal advice. And it's, I am not a lawyer, do not listen to me, but that's so what I've read other people write. Right? <laughs> Damn it. I'm just saying, I've read other people who are <laughs> lawyers write about this. I don't know how right they are, but this is what I have read. Anyway, Disney, did you eat anywhere good there, Alex? Yeah, so I uh, got to go to a few places for the first time that were like on my list. Um, the first was the California Grill which is the restaurant on the top of the Contemporary uh-huh. Resort, which is, like, the one next to the Magic Kingdom. So that was really go... cool because it was, like, a perfect view of the entire Magic Kingdom, and we had reservations for a time when the fireworks show was going on, so they allowed us to oh, go on to, nice. like, the balcony and watch, and that was really cool. Um, and they piped the music in. And the food was delicious, and I couldn't handle the amount of food that they gave. Like, I, ugh, it, like, just, I'm not that used to, that was, like, the have. one thing, is, like, I'm not used <laughs> to eating, like, large American-sized portions. Like, no offense, but, like, the portions are You mean American. normal American-sized portions? <laughs> you normal American-sized American portions, portions that are not Canadian-sized <laughs> portions, you know, government Whatever. Government official size portions. I really want and, to go to California Grill. Sorry, I'm just yeah, really so amazed. Yeah, so like, oh, it's so good. Um, very impressed. So that was amazing. Uh, I got to go to Le Cellier for the first time, which is the Ooh. Canadian restaurant in the Canadian Pavilion, um, which is like not very like traditionally Canadian. It's really just a steakhouse. Um, you can get steak at every restaurant in Disney World though so like that's that's the one thing is like those good were good but like it's there's steak all the time everywhere i I have a question so you yes i still loved it it was still probably my favorite steak and i had the cheddar cheese soup which was also amazing not very canadian again but well that's what i was going to ask is as a canadian how do you feel about the canadian pavilion because i feel it's borderline offensive because it's basically all maple stuff and martin short (laughs) yeah like i mean definitely it's like the parts that are a little too dated and comical are like the indigenous aspects like i think that needs to be reevaluated a little bit but like i kind of find like the traditional canadian stuff just funny like you can buy hockey pucks and like (laughs) things that are so mundane and weird and like why would you even buy this at disney world type stuff so, like, I don't mind what? that at all. I think it's interesting that they... It's really they take such an interesting perspective because it's mostly the French-Canadian. They really lean into that, even though it's not a huge part of Canada by, like, you know, percentage-wise. Um, but that's kind of the distinct, distinctly cultural, I guess, thing that separates us from you guys, I guess. I'm actually curious about that because we've got like that whole, oh, maple syrup, 
hockey uh tim horton's donuts uh like stereotype of canadian culture but like is that something that came out of like northeastern americans making fun of canada or is that like does that actually reflect how canada views itself or like so, like, I've always had, I mean, like, like, a struggle with, like, the Canadian identity as, like, a Canadian who, like, sees themselves as, like, something that's not American. Like, I think, like, um, like America is what Canada would be if we were more, like, patriotic about being white. But, like, I think because we're, like, <laughs> we embrace the multiculturalism a little bit more. No, fa it's not, like, really. You know, I love it. Um, but, like, <laughs> no, so I mean, it's, like, I, I agree the only, you. like... The only white Canadianness is like corporate Canadianness, and that's like Tim Hortons, which is not even a Canadian company anymore. I still drink Tim Hortons probably almost every day, so it's like whatever. That's kind of a stereotype. But like the hockey element, and it's like, yeah, everyone loves hockey, but it's also just got this like huge, like national tie to it that's like, again, it's like football in America. It's kind of like gross and weird. Um, and like disgusting amount of money like being thrown around there and and then it's like yeah everything else is just like clothes you buy like the flannel like roots is a company that's like ex like capitalized on the the flannel look the lumberjack look like not everyone walks around and wears that but like that's what that's how people tell us to be canadian because white people don't know how to have culture basically yeah. outside of that right so that's my, like, a lifetime of thinking about what it means to be Canadian. And Canadians will tell you, like, oh, we have lots of things. We have butter tarts and whatever. And I'm like, okay. Poutine. But, like, still. Classic poutine. You've also yeah, got, like, like poutine. Quebec. Things that people don't really eat a lot of. Like, it's a very, like, special thing to have because it's so bad for you. It's It sounds horrible to me. Just every part of it. So probably gonna get flack for that one but poutine sounds disgusting it really is like i will eat it because i'm yeah, like yeah, eating yeah. garbage food but like it is quite gross it is it is too much i don't actually know if i've ever had poutine everybody's gotta come that. visit alex all right see like Not it all over. sounds great to me except for the gravy gravy sounds gravy and french fries sounds like a weird combination which i no, guess is strange because i'd be okay amazing. with like gravy and like like you know home fried potatoes or whatever it's just french fries that's strange well it's you have to have to make a good poutine fry it needs to be thick enough to be able to withstand gravy oh, you know, yeah. a good poutine is not soggy as hell because it's like full of gravy then you're just doing it wrong a huge string, uh, shoestring fries, and everything came out terrible. Yeah, that's like <laughs> the one thing you probably do not want to use. Uh, so the other thing that weirds me out about poutine is the cheese, because as I understand it, the cheese curds are supposed to be like squeaky cheese, like paneer. And I like paneer yeah. well enough in Indian food, but like, I don't know, there's something about the idea of squeaky cheese and gravy and fries. Just that combination is weird and alien and scares me. The cheese part is purely texture. Like, you get... The gravy overpowers the cheese completely. Or it usually does. Like, obviously, there's so many different takes on poutine now. Like, different kinds of gravy and different kinds of cheeses and whatever. But, like, the traditional, like, 
poutine is your it's the cheese is not the thing that packs the flavor it's just purely the thing that gives it that like texture and that gooey sort of you know cheesy stringy what you want if thing. you're doing any kind of loaded fries dish yeah like like it's to me it's just not an important part of it for taste like that's but that's why it's an yeah. integral part of like it has to be that cheese that being said, I love kimchi fries like a hundred times more than poutine always forever. If I don't know if you've ever had kimchi fries, but they are basically like fries topped with kimchi and then usually like the like Asian um, mayo and that kind of sauce and leeks. Don't you and... have like a fry chart? I feel like you have a fry chart somewhere. For purely the shape. I don't have a, the chart does not encompass like recipes made with fries. That's a whole other game. Hmm. Well, you know what you're doing after this. I know. Now I just made myself hungry again. <laughs> ah. Anywho, we got way off topic, but like, um, I guess those are like the two main restaurants I went to at Disney that. Like, I went to that I didn't before. Everything else was kind of like, oh, like, you know, went back to old favorites. Um, went to some new quick serve places. Went I mean, to, like, a lot, of, a lot of them places, like, in Epcot really were kind of, they were really good. But then, like, some were just, you know, they just didn't try to at all to, like, make good food like like the japanese that, one was very disappointing Epcot. yeah yeah or like i would never like... go there or and like i never would go to the chinese food place or anything but like the, <laughs> um the and the italian one is just kind of like whatever because it's like for me it's not novel but like the mexican one i thought was excellent i you know although recognizing it's not that authentic i you know obviously the canadian one is excellent Nothing to do with authenticity there. It's just good food. Like, that's kind of what makes the good food there in the World in Showcase. In fairness, Le Soleil is a signature dining option. Like, it is one of the, the fancy ones that takes, like, two food credits. It is a fancy yes. restaurant. So is California Grill as well. Yes. Those are both. I really want to go to California Grill, and I'm super envious, and I've never been, and I want to go so bad. Um, but, Field but, yeah. trip. Let's all go. Field trip. Yeah, I'll go back. I'll Which, go back for sure. That would be neat. Have us. Alex will. Alex will make the sacrifice of going back to Disney World. I would go back tomorrow. <laughs> I like Disneyland better. Fight me. Well, uh, I haven't been since I was a baby, so I need to also. I feel go like back we've actually there. had this conversation. We have. We we absolutely have. Chris and I. The got more into we it, talk yeah. about it, the and more it'll happen. I feel happen. like. You and Mumbles were on the Disneyland side, and yeah, Chris so. and Alex like Chris were on the Disney World side. Were on Disney World, yeah. I mean, I feel like this also largely comes down to which coast you're closer to, but yeah. But the Disney thing World I'm just learning, objectively, but that is like more and more is that Disneyland <laughs> has so many more restrictions, like because of just like the locale and the population. It's just like they need yeah. to. I think what it comes down to for me is how much you actually like Disney. I don't want to make my entire vacation about Disney, so I don't want to go to Disney World. One day and I'm done. 
But now there's California Adventure, a rip-roaring adventure through Pixar's best movies, oh, and also man. Guardians, <laughs> and also, uh, what How else is there? How dare they remove the Tower of Terror? The last time we were there, I think, the California Adventure was not totally finished, and most of that stuff wasn't in that, and it was just basically like bad knockoff Did... Six Flag uh, yep. style roller coasters. Have you guys... Have you guys watched any of the Defunct Lands about uh, California Adventure? I freaking love that yes, show. I just discovered that channel. It's so great. Defunct Land it's, is amazing. You should check it out. Rob plays the similar this? things. Defunct Land is basically a channel that has little mini 10, 15 minute documentaries about uh, rides and theme park attractions that no longer exist. And it's kind of amazing. Like the, he did Ooh. one for the, uh, well, it's not just one guy. I think it's, it's Kevin Perjurer and Noah. I don't know their last name, um, but but there's a team of people, and they, they do these documentaries, and it's um, – my favorite one is the stupid uh, ride that was their opening day of California Adventure that was the celebrity tour one, I, the the Superstar yes. Limo one. That the was amazingly bad. That's the one I was going to recommend. If you want to watch and get started on his channel, their channel, uh, Superstar Limo, check it out. It's really good. It's a really bad ride, but it's a good deconstruction of why it was bad and what happened. Anyway, that's that's a cool YouTube channel. Um, And now I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, you want to go to the California Grill a lot? Yes, I I mean, I do. I just want want to go eat signature food in general. I haven't been to Le Cellier since... The last time I was at Le Cellier, it was not signature, or at least not for lunch. Um, So I've been there, but I've not been there as a signature restaurant. Um... I also want to go to all the good food places in Animal Kingdom Lodge because I've never been over there. That sounds amazing. Oh, Maybe the other one I did do. that was really hot ticket was uh, Ohana. Ohana is amazing. I, I that's like the one I do. I try to do every trip. It's it's family style. Uh, I don't know what would you call Meat it like. Pollen, yeah, basically. But it's they really also have like a- it's like Chinese food, but they like call it Hawaiian. It's really good. They have they have like it's it's family style skewers where they just every every couple minutes come around your table and ask if you want more shrimp or if you want more beef or if you want more vegetables. Um, they also have that amazing tonga bread or whatever the 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 banana bread at the end. Yeah, it's the bread pudding. It's it's all just amazing. Also, you can order from the Tambu Lounge. I think a pineapple that has uh, um, yes. booze in it. Um, Ooh, did you yes. go to Trader Sam? Oh, <laughs> no, I didn't. Aw. Trader Sam's is also cool. So here's the thing is like actually most of the people in my group didn't like Ohana. I think it's just because it was like way too much food. Like, I can see that. And it's just they couldn't it was just like too much and you felt obligated to eat everything and like I don't know, it's just like they give you those huge platters of like noodles and like you can't eat any more noodles because you're already full on meat and you don't want to fill up on noodles and they're just throwing away all that food and you feel so bad. But you have to stop eating at some point. So you just, I don't know. It just Filling up on meat is the superior option. For sure. And that's why, like, we didn't eat all our noodles. They had to be thrown out. And even some meat had to be thrown out because they just give you too, so much at a time. You don't even have time to say stop. You know, Chris, that I, I yes. live in this little town um, you may never have heard of called Las Vegas, and it's got a whole bunch of gourmet restaurants. You know, it's an entire street of them. Uh, they're everywhere that you know you could come and, and visit and, and, and eat lots of cool you know, stuff at if you wanted to. 
that's actually half tempting just because I know Lindsay really wants to go to Vegas at some point because neither of us have ever been and it's super Let's cheap to fly go. out there. And, and when go. are we going to do a spoiler warning reunion? I have well, legitimately union. thought about doing that. Like, because it's all subsidized by gambling, air, airfare is pretty cheap and then hotel rooms are really cheap. As long as I don't actually hotel do rooms- any gambling, it should be fine. Have gotten more expensive. Um, they've, they've baked in a lot of like resort fees into uh, hotel room prices that aren't listed as like part of the hotel room prices and stuff like that. Um, parking is now mostly not free anymore, which sucks. Well, um, I'll come stay at your house. For some <laughs> reason, I picture like uh, Vegas being sort of similar to um to uh, the way people treat like. Uh, uh, New Orleans, where it's really just that one strip that everyone cares about. As long as you can get a hotel on that strip, you're you're good. You don't need to worry about taxis yes. or transit. I got that impression when I was in New Orleans, for sure. Yeah, there is that to an extent. Um, the difference between New Orleans and uh, Vegas is that um, in the summer, Vegas is like 115 degrees outside uh, during like around noon. So it's a dry. Um, you, I don't know why humidity yes. and heat keeps coming up as a conversation piece in this uh, podcast, but... Do we all have, like, curly, like, you know, like, frizzy hair? Because that's why, like, I feel like that's how I find my, like, fellow curly hair frizzy people is, like, bring up the summer and everyone's like, here we go. I have, like, the straightest hair in the universe. I have, like, my yes, hair just I have crazy curl. frizzy hair. But the problem is that I don't keep it long enough. Well, I guess that's not a problem. I specifically keep it short enough <laughs> that I don't have to deal with that, because fuck that. I just have generic wavy hair. It's boring. It you doesn't know, do anything cool. The worst part about, about being out here at a tourist spot is not that no one comes and visits me, it's that people come and visit and then don't tell me that they were here until after they were gone. <laughs> like, Ritzker well, I mean, has done this to me like three times. I've never been to Vegas. I'm just gonna say it. So, don't worry about that for me. Also, yeah, we could, you could do CES. I don't. I don't want to come out there for the show. I just want to come out there and eat some good food <laughs> and and I don't know, see a show drink or something. Drink some drinks. Yeah. Drink some drinks. I, I think up. that we've found. I think that we've found the thing that we have in common, Chris, which is that we both like really good food. I like food. I want to eat good places. We just went out to our favorite Japanese place tonight because it's so good. And now I want to go out. Congratulations! And it's all your fault. This is a podcast full of very There's, hungry people. There yes. was an amazing. It, it was it Japanese, Josh. I think it was a Japanese place uh, in Vegas that got shut down, and it makes me sad because they had it, literally the best scallops you would have ever had in your life. But you can't. I get mean, them it anymore. was kind of an Asian fusion place. Um, Whatever it was, it was fantastic, and I can never have scallops again because they were none of them will compare. It was called uh, Sensi's. Uh, S-E-N-S-I. Like the little candles? But, I, I guess. Um, but it wasn't, like, it wasn't shut down because it wasn't doing very well. It was actually shut down because the, uh, the, the head chef convinced the owner to let them, um, build their dream restaurant. So they converted it into that. So, yeah. I mean, I guess it's, like, at least it's not a sad story. Um, no. It's a sad story for me. Because I love that place, but... <laughs> I'm sure I, we can I, find another place that you would like here. Well, I like a lot of food, Josh, but I don't think that I'll ever like scallops again. I can't I can't overstate how 
amazing. It was like a movie moment. It was like that moment from Ratatouille where the guy eats the, the Ratatouille and, uh, like, goes flashes back to his past. It was like that for me. It was fantastic. You flashed back to the uh, the moment in your childhood when you had really good scallops and you've never had them again which, since which then. Which was that same moment, so it was kind of a loop of me flashing <laughs> back to the moment of me eating the food that just happened. It was, it was a whole trip. I lived an entire lifetime in that realm. It was that good. I didn't regret a second of it. So can this podcast now turn into, spoiler warning, plans a trip to Las Vegas cast? Where, like, every week we just do a Sure. Yeah, it's just a travel log. Yeah, like, so week one, we're like, Mine okay, just, let's, well, like, I'm hanging out. book tickets for our, <laughs> our planes. Isn't this fun? It's really cheap kind of for stuff. me to get to Vegas, I'm just saying. Yeah, it's it's not expensive to fly in here, uh, which is nice. I think I can get to uh, to Vegas with uh, under $100. I really think I can. What? Round trip? Yep. Maybe. Maybe not round trip, but I can get it pretty low. If I get the tickets like two months in advance, I can get it super low. I, I've seen tickets for like $60. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, me flying to you, uh, despite the fact that I can <laughs> get direct flights, which is unusual for Spokane Airport. Uh, yeah. Um, we fly it, to LAX. It's like 250 it's almost, bucks. That's we need. Uh, it's more expensive on the way back, I'll tell you that. Um, but, yeah. Uh, if you do a layover in Seattle, it's usually pretty cheap. Yeah. But I don't want to do a layover in Seattle. Seattle's great. What's wrong with you? But, yeah, it's a great city, but not in the airport. Yeah, it's not really super great downtown either. I like to, like, there's certain parts down there that is really great, and then other parts that are like, why is it so dirty here? Like, I'm really mm-hmm. blown away by that. Yeah. That the city center has, like, like garbage and graffiti in places. I'm like, oh, wow. I mean, it's not nearly as bad as San Francisco. No, not as bad as San Francisco. Don't really understand the appeal, but I've only been there, like, the last time I was there was a long time ago, so I'm willing to give it another shot one of these days when eventually I end up there. I'm certain it'll happen. Well, um, this is a, uh, um, the script here says this is a podcast about video games, uh, which I don't think we've mentioned yet today. All right, let's talk about food-related video games, um, and video games relating to traveling to Vegas. I haven't uh, gotten a chance to play Battle Chef Brigade yet, (laughs) but I'm super interested in doing that. Oh, God. Desert Bus about food? No, it's about traveling to Vegas. That's true. That's all I got. I'm out of jokes. Well, you and I have been playing Battletech a bunch. Oh, have I? I have already beaten the game. That's how much I've been yeah, playing I it. Yeah, I have not. I'm, it I'm is on, good. I'm on the ammo dump mission. And that's not that is the great. worst mission. That is the worst mission. Literally the worst mission i cannot describe how much i hate that mission i had to uh i had to load an earlier save because i tried to beat that and all the objectives um for about eight hours before i gave up um and then i had to go back and like grind my way to getting better mechs because that mission is a son of a bitch see I, i think i have the mechs to do it but i 
I like my my save is from like deploying to it. Um yeah, and exactly. I do not have the right mechs with me. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah. That's uh that's one of my biggest problems with the game is it really punishes you for not knowing what you're getting into and it'll like so you get dropped into these situations but it won't drop you in a way that makes any sense so you'll always be far away from the objectives and it and it like puts you in positions that are are already vulnerable and it's like but but like we could just land over there and it would be fine. Yeah. So um there's a lot of like frustrating not just because you don't know the map you lose. It, it does not help that the skull uh, difficulty indicators are just totally worthless and don't at all Total reflect the difficulty nonsense. of the mission. Um, let's let's back up here though for for people who are not totally familiar with uh, with what BattleTech is. BattleTech is a uh, tabletop game that gave us the Mech Warrior stuff from like the '90s, um, and now it's also a turn-based XCOM-style uh, strategy game. Where you run a mercenary company and you have big mechs and you land those big mechs on top of other bigger mechs and stomp them. Uh, and it has the worst tutorial ever. It was not good. Which really, like, like you played MechWarrior Online for like three years, so you kind of already knew what the time. hell everything was, but... Um, yep. I, I played the tutorial and was like, that's it? What the fuck? The tutorial literally just tells you how to move and attack. But it, there's like, you have all these options for like, oh, you, you've got these different weapons. And they're all like abbreviated weapons. So you have no idea like what, what a PPC is or an AC5. Right. See, this is where like my having played MechWarrior in the 90s comes in handy. Because, like, I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh, that's cute. They made a tabletop R RPG out of MechWarrior because I came at it from literally the opposite direction from what you're supposed to. <laughs> um, yeah, so I jumped in there and I, I uh, like, the first couple hours was really rough because I had absolutely no idea what I was doing or or what the, uh, the ideal way to play is or how to deal with, like, like, you know, what different weapons do, or how to manage heat, or what instability is, because none of these things are mentioned in the fucking tutorial. Um, and the interface is, is not particularly self-explanatory either, so... Uh, no. Um, did not have a great time in my first couple hours with it, but then after that, like, after I figured out what the hell was going on, like, this game is, is really, really good. <laughs> like, it's it's... It I, I hesitate to yeah. use the term addictive for games because obviously it's not the same thing as actually being addicted to something, but like it's I'm it's pretty good. Constantly going like, oh man, I could be playing Battletech instead of editing this video. It's and it's then, been uh, a while since fifteen minutes I've, later I'm I've playing Battletech. That has like I have other things I want to do, but I, instead I play this game because I'm, I'm enjoying it so much. And I think part of the appeal comes from the fact that after you do figure out all those abbreviations and whatnot, it is really fun to uh, load out your mechs in different ways. And and I'll say this: um, the game's most comparable to XCOM, uh, but I didn't like XCOM, and I think now that I've played this game, I know why. Which is just that 
you really only had a couple of options. And I didn't play the DLCs, so I don't know if, like, they let you customize things more, but you really kind of only had a couple of classes you could play, and those classes defined what this character would be. Um, whereas in MechWarrior, there's all sorts of different weapons that you can equip. Some of them do more uh, stability damage, which can knock down other mechs, and that can create interesting situations. Uh, some are great for just piercing through that armor and getting those uh, uh, center torsos or, or shoulders. Um, and so there's a lot of options. You can make your, you can even make a melee mech, which is not something you could have done in MechWarrior Online, at least. Uh, you can even make a melee mech that goes in and like literally falls from the sky and kills other mechs. It's pretty awesome. So there's a lot of ways to play the game, um, and that makes it continually interesting as you move on. You can get these different mechs and and play around, uh, and that's what I love the most about it. I should really play it. And it's it's really like it struck some kind of like balance between um you know mech survivability or well I should say unit survivability um and uh terrain effects and cover and stuff and that like um every time that I've lost a mission it's been like a thing where like instead of just going well okay this mission is impossible um which was the case with some XCOM missions I I was always thinking like well, okay, you know, if I just approach from this angle and use this cover this way, and, you know, if I knew that that thing was over there, um, I would have been able to totally clear, clean things up. Uh, so, like, there's, like, losing in the game is, like, I, I'm not playing at Iron Man. Like, if I lose half my mechs in a battle and, like, everybody's dead, like, uh, I, right. I will reload. But, um, you know, it, it leaves, it doesn't usually make me super frustrated in the way that XCOM would on some of its, especially XCOM 2's stupid timed missions, uh, where, like, losing with those just felt really frustrating. With this one, it's, it's been much more, um, I come back, I, I come back and I'm looking at it like a puzzle, like, oh, okay, you know what, I, if I just done this right, then it would all have worked out. And then I usually go back and, and I uh, play the mission again with uh, with my new player and, and see how that works right. out. Um, and, and most of the missions aren't frustrating. I'll, I'll say that. Like, there's plenty of ones that I played and lost, and I had to reload because I, I got wiped to an amount that I wasn't willing to, to you know, keep rolling with. Because you could, for the most part, you can lose and keep playing and just rebuild up. But, um... Yeah, I wasn't interested in that for reasons that I'll get into in a minute. But but I will say I didn't get frustrated at mini missions. Um, the the ones that were really difficult that I had to reload, I like Josh was saying, it felt like a puzzle. And the ones that like I lost someone on or a mech on, but like maybe it felt like a really challenging map. It felt rewarding to beat a map and only have one one mech lost, especially as it gets more difficult. Um, I think. Uh, one of my biggest problems with the story narratively and why I I often would reload even if I only wa lost one mech is it does seem to have this timeline uh, no spoilers but it does seem to have this timeline of events and like everything else uh, except for maybe XCOM um, you're spending a lot of time outside of that doing like you could consider them side quests they're contracts you can do contracts for other like non-story related things uh, and you're, you can spend a lot of time outside of that and it kind of ruins the narrative flow a little bit if you pay attention to the timeline. Like, at one point, one character says, oh, I've been waiting for this for X amount of time. And I was like, well, really, you've been waiting for that for three years more? Because I've been playing this game for, <laughs> like, 150 in-game weeks. So, like, your timeline's That's... a little messed up here. 
It's a bit uh, open world game with a main quest that you don't pay any attention to. Right. But the problem is the main quest is like, this thing is happening now. And then I spend, you know, two months off in the middle of fucking nowhere. And and somehow this like big important event just waits for me. I don't know. For whatever reason, that really bothers me in games. So I rushed through the main story. I, I finished it um, yesterday, I think. Uh, I didn't and feel now, like that that was always viable or even what the game was trying to point you to do because the main story missions tend to ramp up in difficulty pretty quickly. Yes, I agree, but there are also things where it's like, this is an important thing that's happening, right? Like, we gotta go do this thing or else bad things will happen. And then you have the option to just not go do that thing for literally for 50 years. weeks. <laughs> yeah, for like a couple of years and then come back to it and it's still there and that, I don't know, for whatever reason that just ruins the narrative flow uh, for the game uh, for me. So I rushed through the story missions because I just couldn't. I couldn't handle them being like, alright, now that you've come back after two years. Because you have situations where mechs and plot pilots, if you get a pilot injured or if you get a mech that's damaged, you have to fix those things and those can take up to like 30 days. Um, especially no, early pilots, on. Pilots can be injured for like 90 days or more yeah it's, upon it's been upgrades. a while since I, i've had that happen because you do get upgrades to make those things faster um but yeah it, it can be a really long time um so if you're gonna have a narrative in a game like this where you actually record the amount of time that's passing and you make it that long either adjust the narratives like urgency or uh don't have it be urgent at all because it felt a lot like um I should be doing this, but I'm not because my pilot is out. The pilot I want to take on this mission is out. I've got that also, a little bit. <laughs> oh yeah, the game is not stable. Uh, it's it's unfortunately and, not. And like, it takes a long time to load, and I've got it on a solid state drive. So like, and it still takes like 15, 20 seconds to load a fucking mission, and uh, and yep. the menus are really laggy. It's worse on um, not a solid state. Especially when you're doing like mech loadout stuff. The mech loadout screen yeah. is really, really sluggish. It takes like five to ten seconds to load every click. Like every new menu and then I you go realize, into takes five to ten seconds. Oh, actually, I need to go to the store and buy one more heat sink. So you, you undo your changes and back. pop back out and go to the store and then go back to the mech loadout screen and wait another 10 seconds for it to load up, and then have to requeue up all your changes that you already did, and, and also add the extra heat sink. And then you realize you forgot to buy another thing. <laughs> so it's uh, definitely not a flawless execution in those ways. And I'm hoping that as they go on, like maybe they'll add updates to make it more stable and to fix some of those problems. Um, it feels to me a bit like maybe they, they did all the features they wanted to do, but maybe they didn't fix the performance, and they kind of rushed that yeah. out the door. Um but, uh, you know, that only is a, a like, I, I didn't find that to be really annoying. What The worst that it ever is, is when you are doing a mission that's really difficult, and then you get to the ending screen and it crashes. That is really demoralizing. And in any other game, like, if it had been XCOM, I would have never played it again. Uh, I happen to be a big MechWarrior fan, so I, I like to, to I, I I continue to play the story. It didn't, it didn't bother me as much. But there's definitely been several times... uh. Like, even the last missions that I crashed, and it was like, oh, I gotta do this all again. And it was really hard to get it right the first time. So. 
that can be. I've had this really annoying bug where sometimes when I load into missions, all my mech textures won't load, so all my mechs are neon yes. purple. That's only happened to me once, and but it was real weird. It, it is happening to me, like, every three missions, and I have to fully quit the game and load in again. And sometimes it happens to me again after I load in, and that's really starting to piss Ooh. me off. Yeah, that would get annoying. That only happened to me once, and it was like, what is happening? Yeah. Um, Speaking of video games that are fun... That that was a segue. Uh, I've also been playing Frostpunk. <laughs> Ooh, the game of coal. And that, that game is really interesting. Love it. It's frigid. <laughs> it is it is cold in Frostpunk, yes. Um and Frostpunk is a narrative game that uses uh city building in a frozen steampunk uh setting as sort of the uh the canvas with which it tells its story so it looks kind of initially like it's um like surviving mars or something or or like banished um and it's a a an infinite city builder with uh you know where where one of your main units of uh of interaction is like being able to assign individual people to do indiv like to do specific jobs so like oh you've got a coal pile send 15 workers to go and and dig it up and get coal from it um but actually there is no free mode in this uh in this game and it has like like each of the scenarios has a set story and there is an end point for them um which i found really interesting like i don't i can't think of another city builder kind of game that's done that where like there there's a narrative here and there you know if you manage to to fulfill all the objectives like you win like that's that's the the story. Like the story comes to an end, and that's it. I mean, it really does feel like it's an evolution of what they were doing with uh, this war of mine. Like it, that really is. It superficially, does. it looks like a city builder, and it is a city builder at a certain level. Like you're plopping buildings down, you're giving people homes, you're giving people medical tents or whatever. But really, what it is is resource allocation and balancing in between sending people out on scouting missions to forward the overall plot. Um, it's less of a procedural plot than uh, this War of Mine had, which this War of Mine was kind of more um, procedurally generated in the sense that it had a preset number of characters that had their own backstories and, and things going on in their lives. Um, and each one had their own endings you could reach. Um, in this one, it's it's the story of these exiles from London um, and very specifically their, their story and, and the city they set up in a crater far, far, far to the north. Um, but yeah, it's it's structured like this war of mine, even though at first blush it's a city builder. It really isn't a city builder. It's using city builder mechanics to make you to to ask you to do resource allocation and resource uh, management um, and time management um, with a finite number of people, and it's pretty interesting. I I really dig it. It's it's doing a lot of things that have never really been done before, even if individually each thing has been done before like it doesn't do anything genuinely new but no game has mixed up the things that are in this game the way this game does yeah i'd agree with that um it's got a really cool setting really cool aesthetic um, very very cool 
but in fact, it's dedication to its its <laughs> aesthetic feel like it, it maybe goes a little overboard because like towards the end game uh it becomes very difficult to tell what the hell's going on because you've got so much smoke in the air from your generators i really need to use generators more i don't use them enough yeah i don't know you can't you can do it without using those small generators. It's hard, but you can do it, and it's so much easier to see, Josh. It's so much better. Yeah, I loaded probably. up a game on easy just to see how if I could like get through all the tech trees and stuff, and it was so much easier to see everything. It was great. I I, I also enjoy that the fact that there is a little bit of room for player expression um, in terms of like the rule system, the, the rule of law system, um, because it sort of simultaneously gives you a little bit of min-maxing and tweaking how you want to approach running your city, but it also um, has an actual mechanical value. Um, and you are forced between, like, you know, how are we going to deal with the dead? Do we just throw them in a big ice pile and smack our hands together and, and go, done, we did it, or do we want to actually do burials? The problem with burials is you got to actually bury them, um, and also you don't have perfectly preserved bodies, so you can't use those for body parts later if ever you need body parts for reasons. So, uh, it, it's, it's an interesting series of trade-offs then, but if you leave this giant pile of frozen bodies around, that kind of hurts morale and people don't really dig that either. So. Yeah. The, the some of those kind of fell flat to me. Cause like the morally good, you know, we're not going to give up our ideals kind of options often ended up paying off better than the. Fuck it, we're in a survival situation for the species, maybe. Uh, we need yeah, to do everything it, we can. It had a feeling of judging you for doing the things yeah. that were necessary and that, that seemed natural uh, for for the story. Um, like, I went, I went full on, like, this is a survival situation. We're going to make sacrifices. Like, people are going to work long hours, and I don't care. Um, like, like, why can't these people just work these long hours knowing that if they don't, everyone will die? Like, it to me feels like they shouldn't be, I mean, obviously somewhat upset, but shouldn't be too upset about that. Um, but the game will make you feel bad for doing those things, or try to at least. I never did. I was like, that, that, that is the game's like one absolutely crippling conceit. The, the, the conceit that yeah. like, it is the post-apocalypse. We are huddled together in patchwork tents next to a giant heat generator that must at all times be fueled with coal, lest it shut down, and we are sitting here in negative 20 degrees Celsius weather in, in patchwork tents. And yet, we have all agreed that we will work 9 to 5, and not one moment after 5. <laughs> Nobody will work after 5. We have two hours of leisure time, and then it is straight to bed. And, like, you... <laughs> You, you can set up policies that adjust that and say, like, oh, we're going to be working longer hours or whatever. But, like, I feel like intuitively, if there's a giant generator that desperately needs coal, you could work in shifts to make sure that coal is continuously being produced at least a little bit. As opposed to, like, yeah. running out halfway through the night and everyone just going, like, well, <laughs> we... Because there's an indicator on your HUD <laughs> that tells you how much time you have left in terms of how fast you're burning coal and how much time you have left uh, the, based on how much how much you have and how much fast you're burning through it. And so, like, it could be 5 o'clock on the dot, the whistle blows, all the workers go home, and you can look up on your screen and see that you have five hours of coal left. So you either need to sh start shutting down generators now, or you're going to just have all your workers quit at 5, go home to their beds, and halfway through the night, the generator will just shut down. 
And I just, that scenario that you can't easily make people go back out in shifts or whatever without having serious, you know, without having to change the rule of law, um, is weird to me that this rigid nine to five, uh, work schedule for what is essentially the survival of the species. That, that is weird. That's the one thing where the game is like, I get it, but it's weird. It's also set in like 1888. Uh, and I feel like the, the eight hour work day had not even been established as typical, even when people weren't working to make sure that they didn't all freeze to death. Yeah, there's, like there's, in Victorian London. It's Victorian London. I remember playing Ubisoft's uh, Assassin's Creed Unity and freeing children from uh, uh, sweatshops and labor shops in, in, in Victorian London and Assassin's Creed Unity. And this game turns around and goes, yeah, you can't let kids work. And again, I get it. I get that this game... Unless is, you is, sign is, a law that says you can. Well, yes, you can sign a law that says that they can, but... Again, it's weird that from the get-go, in a survival situation, yeah. everyone is like, children aren't going to work, and we're going to be working 9 to 5, if that's okay with you. Like, we start from, like, a very modern perspective of what this labor is going to look like, and then you can modify it later with different laws and enactions. But it, it's just it's just a weird perspective from the game to start from. I get why it's there. I'm not saying I want a game that does nothing but exploit the labor of children. But it's weird that that's where the game starts. Like, our our starting line yeah. is work as we understand it in 2018, even though it's set way back then. Way back then, and you're freezing your asses off. Yeah, and it's survival of the species kind of thing. I mean, kids know how to pick up coal. I can't imagine that's a hard job. Because they're not mining. <laughs> they're literally picking it. At the start of the game, at the start of the game, you are not mining coal. You are picking it up off the ground. There are deposits in the yep. snow that you just walk out through the snow, pick it up, and carry it back. That's literally your job. And I'm like, in fact, kids can do that. You can make machines that like build those dumps. So you could pot- potentially have children doing that the whole time. But uh, it. So I also. There's no. How do I put this? I have not gotten as far in the game as you guys have, but I, I know that, at least from what I've seen, there's not like... The other reason it's not like a city-building game is that everything's about survival of the group, right? So there's not like police stations or fire stations or power plants, and there's also not schools. I'm wondering how this is going to work in the long term, where you've got a, a surplus of children who are not being educated. How do you get more engineers that are supposed to be the specialty laborers that can get you... like? How do, how would the game even approach that? Because the game ends before the kids grow up. Like that's not well. Yeah, a there's there's no like like the game takes place over maybe half a year at the long end, depending on which scenario we're talking about. Like, uh, and really? there's no system of like long? oh, I I you know what it may not even go that long. Um, I think it may be I like, think the longest like I've ever seen it go is two like months. 50 days. Um. And there's no system in the game for like, oh, the, the this couple had a baby, and now we gotta provide for that and and raise it and so on or anything. But like, it is implied that if you do child shelters, like the children are getting some kind of education. I guess. I don't know. I just it's um, weird. And there are police stations in the game if you go order. Uh, and by police stations, I mean guard towers. Oh well, that's okay. I guess that's true. 
I, I didn't associate guard towers and your personal Gestapo as as police in the you've traditional got, you've sense. You've got guard towers and prisons, and you can send you can go arrest people who are being discontent. That's the other interesting thing is that the the laws that you get access to, other than the first set of traditional laws, um, once you have the order and the religious sects or the religious sets of laws. Um, they're all about just establishing systems of control over the population, which is really kind yeah. of dour and creepy. And like, that's, that to me is one of the darkest things about the game is basically, I don't want to spoil anything, but you, you don't start with those, uh, those other two rule sets. And when you get those other two rule sets, there's a, there's like a story moment that instigates that. And that's actually some of the darkest stuff is like, well, now we need a reason to, to, to control the people better. We can either turn to, police state fascism or we can turn to using religion as a tool to bludgeon people which one do you want to embrace like that's kind of the game the question the game asks not exactly that but it's to me one of the more uncomfortable elements of the game is is the way it sort of is like yeah we weren't worrying about that stuff before but now let's let's think about how to do this i don't know i mean it i think it fits though Oh no, it totally fits. Especially just, like, like because the the story moment that makes it clear that like hey, we need we need oh, some yeah. a more centralized authority and uh, is is realizing, oh shit, actually we are probably the last city. Yeah. No, I I mean it, it totally makes sense within the context of the game. It's just um how do I put this? It's an it's a good dark counterpoint to the fact that it mostly tries yeah. to pay off your better instincts. Like this game wants to tempt you to do bad and then reward you for doing good. Um and I think that's sort of an interesting design but, choice without the I'm trying to figure out how to say this without being a hypocrite about BioShock 1 and I'm struggling to find the words. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say but it kind of spoils that in that like it is such an extreme situation that I don't feel like necessarily everything was bad. Like, it makes you feel way worse for the decisions that you needed to make than I think that it has the right to. Because um, I didn't find, like, I I went down a route that I didn't think was too terrible. Uh, and uh, there are certain things you can do that aren't, like the worst thing ever and still win the game and then the game still is like yeah but was it worth so it? do, do <laughs> like, we like yes do we know that the game always rewards what we think is a happier option or are we picking what we think is the happier option because that's the option we chose and when we get rewarded for it we're like oh okay the game thinks that the good guy option is the right option like okay i'll put i'll put it this way when it came down to whether you want to um amputate limbs or do the extreme surgery which ones did you guys pick that's that's the same option you mean pe put or, people in care yeah. houses or yes do one. extreme I surgery never, i never did care houses i never did care houses i did care houses first time around um and what did the how, game how did that work how did the game handle that like did it punish you or did it say it was good um I believe it said it was good, uh, although I ultimately decided that, like, it's actually much better to just do radical surgery and yes. give people prostheses. Um, it's so I, much better. I think better. there's some there's something that, like, people who are in care houses can still do or, like, some bonus to having them, but I don't remember what it is. Right, like, eventually um, you can research things. If you put the kids in the the learning center or whatever it is, the daycare... Eventually, the you can train shelter. them to help out with certain things. <laughs> Take care. Yeah. 
<laughs> I couldn't think of the term. The trash day care. That's technically correct. <laughs> oh, dear. Those poor kids. Oh, dear. Kids I'm got just, it easy. I'm just picturing the little sister school from Bioshock now in, in uh, your in your city. <laughs> House for wayward I orphans. Big daddies. But anyway, I, I chose uh, amputation and radical surgery because I thought it was more important to keep people alive than to care for them as they die and give, like, hospice care. And uh, I did that, and then at one point the game was like, you know, holy crap, this guy this guy is freaking out. He, he's, he's got massive frostbite on his foot, and we have to amputate to keep him alive, but he's refusing treatment. What do you want us to do? Do you want us to take his leg off anyway, or do you want to just, like, you know, listen to his wishes and, and let him be? And I'm like... Look, we, we, we need, we need people alive. Cut his leg off. Um, and they took his leg off and then, you know, hours passed in the game. And then I guess three hours after he got his leg amputated using 1800s technology, he runs up to me and was like, that was a great decision. Um, I'm very happy that, that you did that. I was freaking out. I was not in my right mind. Good on you for making that choice. And really? I, I'm wondering if the game always tries to pat you on the back. Like, I'm wondering no, if I let him, let him die, uh, hope falls. That's not at all what happened. I cut off his leg, and then he kills himself. I didn't know really? it was even an option. Yeah, I didn't even know he could okay, possibly like recover from that. That is fascinating. Give him a prosthetic? I, no, I didn't have prosthetic. Like, right away? Weird. Yeah, I, I feel okay. like I did that event um, two ways. I did it one where I cut off his leg, and he just committed suicide. And then I did it um, where I uh, didn't cut off his leg, and he died, and people felt sad. So now right. I'm wondering how RNG-based this is. Yeah. Yeah, like, I wonder, because I never ran into the scenario you had, but, like, I think that's fine that they have some amount of, of randomness. Uh, but, yeah, I just didn't know. I never ran into it. I'd played it a couple times, because there are other scenarios you can do other than the first one. Like, you can beat the first one and then do other scenarios in the same sort of world. Are they um, different which I think stories? Yeah, they're different stories. Uh, yes. They exist in the same time period. Like I, I imagine that these are going on at the same time, and I think that's super neat. Um, the third one is pretty cool because it's like a a group of uh like lower class people who basically killed all the rich people who were going to take one of the the steam dreadnoughts to uh to the north to set up one of the surviving colonies uh and took it for themselves and are now setting it up um as uh you know a workers uh haven so are there like gameplay challenges in that context that are different than normal gameplay? Like you don't yes. have any engineers uh, to in start. In that one, or... you have a whole bunch of refugees streaming in, and you've got to set up stuff to like accommodate them, or shit's going to go bad real fast. Yeah, I think all the scenarios are pretty unique, and I like them. Um, like they they do change up the gameplay. Like for instance, another scenario gives you a lot of engineers to start, but uh, like no workers, and you kind of have to figure out how to make that work and and survive. Pretty cool. It's a neat game. I, I if you like city building or uh, this war of mine, I, I definitely recommend it. It's it's neat. Plus, there's like cold effects. It's snowy. Sometimes it the camera lens good. gets like icy. Yeah, I, I like I like moving the camera around and making like the vignetting make everything look cold. <laughs> I can't tell if this is a game I'd like really like to play in the middle of summer to like 
mentally think of coldness and cool off, or if it's the kind of game that's like perfect for winter when it's already freezing outside and you're just huddled up in front of your computer. Because we're in spring now, and we're kind of like in that in-between time, and temperature doesn't really matter right now. I mean, it's like I pretty much exclusively played it over a period of several nights, uh, like middle of the night, uh, all the lights off with like a glass of scotch. So like that is my preferred means of playing. This is a pretty chill game despite uh, everything. Just Josh indulging on the luxuries of life while his video game people yeah. suffer. Well, you can give them moonshine. But from what? What crop? I guess there's the stupid hard, hardy crops that the, you grow in the, the hot houses. houses. Um, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, actually, that's a the, good point. The they food don't, they don't question really make that clear. Is, is one of those things that's not really addressed by the game, and that's probably a good thing, because oh. if you start thinking about food in this scenario, you go, oh, actually, right. how, how could it be possible to grow enough food or hunt enough food to support, like, 500 people in yeah. the Arctic? Well, um, that we, we talked about some video games after talking about not video games for a while. Um, Two of my I think favorites. we're out of time by quite a bit, actually. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, so thanks for tuning in. Um, You're welcome. This is the part where the rest of you jump in and save me from this horrible outro. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning um, in, everybody. Stay tuned tomorrow you for a new see... episode every day this week. Exactly. Oh, if you want to see the new episode every day, click on Josh's face now. <laughs> uh, Chris. Nice. Yes. Say little narrative dissonance. <laughs> you know how many Bitcoin games there are on Steam? I looked. Uh, how many? 39. Ooh, okay, that's not true. should be, but less than I expected. No, that seems like really high to me. The names are all very similar. There is Call of Bitcoin, Bitcoin Tycoon Mining Simulation Game, Monte Crypto, The Bitcoin Enigma, Bitcoin VR, Bitcoin Farm, Bitcoin Highway, just Bitcoin, Bitcoin Miner, Bitcoin Clicker, Bitcoin Collector, Bitcoin Collector colon Spinner's Attack, Bitcoin Mania, not mania, mini. Bitcoin or bomb? Question mark. Bitcoin trader. Bitcoin mining.